Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str. You have somehow ended up listening to the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real but also is cool podcast or sturdy dick were bayek or uh never mind Welcome back to the show. I know you missed us, ladies and gentlemen. This is, of course, stuff that's real that you didn't know was real, but also is cool. And I'm I, here. I can think of at least 10 different things that it could be. It could be. That are not stuff that's cool or stuff that's real. <laughs> but it's cool. But, but it's, it's cool. But it's cool. But it's cool. And I'm here, not alone, not by myself, but with my friend, my buddy, my partner in crime. Partner in life, in some ways. I see you, man. You're I appreciate a sexual you. life mate. <laughs> Mr. J. Kevin Tumlinson, Esquire, sir. Hello, hello, hello. And, good to uh, see you, man. It's good to see your face, too. We're not face-to-face in real life, but this oh, has been yeah. an appropriate substitute for the past couple of years for everybody. So This has been my primary means of communicating with any given human being for two years now. So I think we are as face-to-face as we would otherwise be. It's about as IRL as we can get. We're not this quite in it. space, this but it's it. <laughs> I got to tell you, I've been listening back to some of our shows. Have I, did I tell Ooh. you? Are you the one listening? Are you the one? I've seen I'm some the stats. I'm the subscriber. Since I'm all <laughs> over the place, that means we've we've got listeners like in every state as right. I drive around <laughs> from state to state. But very good work, by the way. The guy you've got doing the uh, Titan. editing of the show and everything. Yeah. Titan. My boy Titan. He's doing great. He's awesome. Yeah, I think he's a little sick right now. So we're going to thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's okay. good. And it's interesting. I even listen to your parts, not just my parts. Oh, uh, no so way. Really? It's, it's actually interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, you know, you All can right. send your notes over afterwards. And, you know, I know you've got a long file of changes for me to make. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, I was hoping that you would kick us off today. Oh, really? Cool. Okay. Something that's real. Something we didn't know. And if it isn't either of those things, I'm just going to go ahead and cut you off. So no, no, I think not real, um, if it's not cool. And if I know it, then you fail. So here, the here, here's the, the points don't matter. This is, <laughs> this is what we've talked in the past about part of the purpose of this show. Other than just being pure entertainment, anybody can listen. You don't have to be an author, but we have a particular slant on these stories because we are authors and, and in, we are thriller authors in particular. This story, as soon as I came across it, hit me as a thriller novel or a thriller film waiting to be produced. Okay. We're going to talk about the book Martin. Okay. Now, I'm Martin, and that's M-A-R-T-E-N. A Martin is a bird that is um, sort of known as kind of a thief of the bird world. 
<laughs> says, in fact, uh, from the article, it says, Martins are carnivorous mammals. Oh, I thought they were birds. I'm sorry. So I, right away, oh, I started saying, man, this is an interesting bird. For like some reason, penguin. I thought it was birds. <laughs> Martins are carnivorous mammals, not birds, that often steal bird eggs and are notoriously difficult to get rid of. So that is a pretty apt description of a man named Norbert Schild. That okay. is a German name, so I may have butchered it. Well, you'd have to yell when you say anything in German. Norbert! Yes, exactly. That, that, that um, was perfect. That was, I didn't know you spoke German. It's incredible. <laughs> so this guy, Mr. Schild, it has become notorious in the book world. He's now known for a very long time. He was doing this secretly. No one knew what was happening, and no one knew that it was happening. But this guy has actually, for decades, been going to various libraries in Europe and effectively stealing maps, old antique maps, hmm. from the pages of various books. Uh, and he's done it without anyone even realizing that it was happening for a very long time. So, you know, the, I love the way the whole thing opens. It says that, you know, he discreetly sliced out a map of Alsace. <laughs> I'm from pages that, yeah. from pages 375 and 376. Now, what's interesting about this, and the reason I thought this is great, well, first of all, it the whole scenario reads like a sort of, you know, one of those sort of European thriller stories, right? You've got this guy, he goes into various libraries, he walks out with clever methods and tools, he manages to snake away these ancient, sometimes, maps. And, it even uh, says and the word mustachioed. There, there's, he is uh, mustachioed. The, the yeah, this is so European that the antagonist the, is the director of the city library, Gunther Franz. And he's got, <laughs> uh, it says mustachioed specialist in the history of the book. Yes. And I'm assuming the book in this case means books, but it has to be fancy. Books, plural. <laughs> yes. And so what, in fact, is I think it was, let's see, who was it? Franz uh, is the. Uh, he's the director. here. Yeah, so he's the Director one that, that nicknamed this guy Shield yes. as the book martyr or Booker Martyr. So the deal is, this guy would go into these libraries. He'd give his actual name, and then he'd say, "I'm here as a historian, a researcher, a student." You know, he'd give all. Okay, I'm a doctoral student, and he would take the book, find a quiet place, unobserved, and carefully slice out using. Whatever blades he had, he would Whatever slice implementation out. he brought. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, later, they started thinking, because he always wore big jewelry. And what they think he was doing was he had a ring with a sharp edge that he could just run along the edge of the page. Basically, you fold a book open, he puts his hand in the, the, you know, the little seam there and runs his hand from top to bottom and gently pulls away that map. And so this guy actually had like spy level tools he was using. Now, what's interesting is he got caught in one of these libraries. He didn't realize that there were people who could see what he was doing. And when they called him on it, his reaction was, well, it was worth a shot. And he threw his library card at them and then left. This whole thing reads like just a terrible <laughs> first edition or first draft of Ocean's Eleven. You know, yeah. they're like, okay, it's going to be a heist. All right, cool. Okay, well, great. Well, that sounds fun. Like, what are the stakes? Okay, books in libraries. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, what if they catch him? He's going to throw a library card at the library. It's like, just... <laughs> All right, well, guys. So nobody gets killed. Did, nobody's hurt. Things <laughs> did get a little more serious. I mean, it started to kind of come out that 
So they sort of filed a report and they spread his name around to all these libraries in Europe as a warning, be on the lookout for this guy. And certain people kind of went white as a sheet because they realized they knew the guy and that he came very often to some of their libraries. And so they started checking the various books that this guy had worked with and discovered that a lot of them were light by several pages. So he'd been doing this for decades. Well, he would also go to the extent of like he would cut out the appendix so that no one had a record of what maps were in there. He would actually number the pages. There's a technique used by archivists, professional archivists, where they take a graphite pencil and they number the pages so that you can see you know, everything is in order, right? So unless you saw the numbers jump from you know, 200 to you know, 207, you wouldn't know that there were any pages missing in between there. So that's a trick used by archivists. Well, he actually adapted that trick for the books he was mutilating and just numbered them after he'd cut out the maps so that no one would even suspect that there was anything missing. So he developed this whole network of tricks that he would use. So that's all interesting. Okay, but here's the thing there that really this that is really catch got me if you to can. Me. This is catch me if you with can books. with checks that he can't cash. Right. Except that he did cash them. He yeah. did. He would sell them on the black market. So there's the and, there's or the, sometimes to auction houses he, because okay. So there is a the, one of the things this article points out. It is a actual problem in the like document and a rare document and, and archival uh, art and that sort of thing. That industry has a sort of ask no questions mm-hmm. policy. And so unless they suspect there's something wrong, they won't try to verify whether what you have is legitimate or not. For some reason, Europeans in particular don't see a problem with this. They don't see any issue with this. You know, why should I care? It could be their property. Why should I put them under that kind of scrutiny? So he was benefiting from that sort of lackadaisical approach to verification. So he would actually sell some of these maps to auction houses and other collectors legitimately without them knowing that these things were stolen. So that's a problem. But when I started hearing that, I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of impressive. And then eventually he started, as people started cracking down on it, technology became more prevalent and they were able to track things a little better, like to the point of some of these libraries would get this very precise scale, digital scale, that could measure down to like the microgram or whatever, they would weigh a book before and after it was checked out every single time. So if so much as a page was missing, the numbers would be off and you'd be caught. But once he started realizing they were kind of on to him, and when things were going to get harder, he started using pseudonyms and he started actually employing other people to go do the work. So, you know, his business continued. And I thought, this is tenacity. I mean, you know, this guy must be raking in the cash from this in order to do this. So I was astounded to discover that the amount of money he makes from this is something like, you know, fifty to $60,000 a year. <laughs> well, it's, so, there's a quote here that says he would have made like 200,000 Deutsche Marks, which is more than $100,000 a year, U.S. Dollars right. Yes. In the late 90s. This, that's on, crazy. On man. average. But that's seven, like $10 that's billion still, in today's dollars. But that's still so very, I mean, $100,000 in 1990, it would have been a lot of money, but it's still not like risk. It's, prison it's not like, mo- yeah, mind-blowing money, yeah. right? And that's why I think he's, he's able to go under the radar for so long. Right. Because he's not living right. lavishly, so, he's just surviving on maps. But it, it really kind of emphasizes, like, that was an interesting twist to me, that the amount of money he was making was really 
not much more than he could have probably made in a legitimate job in the industry. Like he likely could have got, maybe he's not going to make a hundred grand as a librarian, but if he had clearly had like the skills of an expert archivist, you know, he probably could have gotten into the business of managing auctions and things like that for rare documents, verifying rare documents, and probably made, if not a hundred grand a year, then, you know, a pretty close number, definitely enough to keep him happy, keep him in the lifestyle he was living. But I was thinking, you know, if you're going to do stuff like this, like the take for me would have to be like million, not a hundred grand for the year, a hundred grand per document. That's what I'm thinking. Well, but think about this is the workload here. This isn't like, you know, you got to hire a team and you got to get the cool tech and you got to get Don Cheadle to get the EMP from the MIT. Yeah, true. You just need a ring with a sharp edge on it. (laughs) You get to go to the library. That's all your, that's your whole job. You get to go to the library and then you get to go to the auction and drink some free wine. Like, Okay. Right? I mean, and you it's have, not like you're doing you this every day. You have opened my eyes. Yeah. No, you have opened my eyes to. <laughs> That's just it, it. It's like, well, sure. I'd, I'd love to make ten million a year, but if I don't have to live anywhere and I can live in a van and drive around Europe. Yeah. Let's let's really put this in practical terms. If someone said you could make a hundred thousand dollars this year, and all you have to do is go to ten different libraries over the course of the year and spend an hour in each of them, then yeah. <laughs> then yeah That's exactly money. then it starts to make sense then doesn't it <laughs> it does make sense yes okay. and it, and the, so, yeah, the, okay. the beauty of this whole thing to me is that it's not a million dollars because right. then every local police force is going to be like well how much did but okay cool we'll put it like it's, it's like a petty crime it's a that, and that, you know in that hundred grand that means that with each document he took the value was small enough that it probably wasn't for the people who would be looking at it, the people who would be looking into it are the same guys who are going to hunt down the guy who just stole a Rembrandt or yeah. you know, whatever, and or stole a map worth million. So they are going to deprioritize this thing that only would have cost like 30 grand, right? Exactly. They're not going to yeah. put as much they're energy they're and effort into hunting it. So exactly. if you think about it, that's kind of genius. That's sort of genius. Now, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. is currently serving time for this, but he's actually gotten in and out of charges for this stuff for years. You know, he's currently serving time, but he seems pretty confident that he's going to overcome the charges. He seems pretty confident that he's going to wriggle out of the charges once again, because he always has. They can never find any evidence. They can never find any documents Mm. in his home. And as his lawyer said, all the evidence is circumstantial. All they have on him is that he was there, checked out the books on those dates, and those books have missing maps. They don't even have evidence that he took them. Mm. So the book I do like this line. It says, through his lawyer, S.H.I.E.L.D. declined to comment for this story. Unless <laughs> Atlas Obscura paid for an exclusive interview. Right. That's brilliant. <laughs> I didn't know that was that an option. That is awesome. <laughs> I didn't know that was an option. Yeah, sure. Pay me 10 grand and I will answer your questions. At right. the ones that I want to answer. Right. <laughs> I'm going to start saying I mean, look at this. He said, in, he's sitting in the courtroom. He says, in the courtroom, Shield sipped Diet Coke, speaking only to say that the map was already gone by oh, the man. time he accessed the Kepler book. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Could you refresh my Diet Coke, please? <laughs> What's that old, uh, is it Bartleby the Scribe, where he just keeps saying, I would prefer not to? I, yeah, something like that. I would, I prefer, I would prefer not to. to. Yeah. This, is, that's, this guy's like Bartleby. This is, <laughs> yeah. How's that for a literary reference? My English teacher should be go. proud. He pulled that one out of, out of uh, that one out. eighth grade. I've been holding English. that one for yeah. a long time. This is cool, man. So for me, the twist here would be like if I'm writing a thriller, I'm going to make S.H.I.E.L.D. So he's kind of a fall guy, but he's doing it on purpose. 
And, and the, what he's doing is he found out that in these particular libraries, there's something else that's very valuable. And it's not maps. It's yeah. like, let's call it, let's say financial documents of important figures, excuse yeah. me, in German, uh, German history, like German monarchy. And there's, yeah. there's books running around that people don't realize have this financial data and he can use it to blackmail the current people in power. Right. And they pay him lavishly in order to get these documents. So they can destroy him. Now, in order to create a front for himself, he went in and stole maps that were kind of the low key heist and, you know, secretly, not so secretly, I'm doing finger quotes here, did it in a way that the librarians would kind of catch on, right? Because the very first thing in the article talks about how they were on this platform, like three feet tall, they could see him the whole time. He's just in there like chopping out this map, which is pretty easy to see, you know, what he's doing. And then he yeah. just leaves and throws his library card. And then he it starts this whole thing rolling. So he gets in trouble for this petty crime effectively, but nobody yeah. knows what he's actually doing is making millions from these financial guys that are paying him to get these tax records or whatever it is. Yeah. What do you think about that? How's that? For or, yeah, I like that. Financial I mean, I think equally it could work as well. That also he aliens. Was meant to be, <laughs> he was meant to be the distraction because while they're focused on keeping him from stealing these maps, they're not paying attention to this vault of, you know, older texts. There's huge money in this book market. I read Camino Island, one of John Grisham's books. He's written two books that are in that theme, Camino Island and Camino Wins. They're two of my favorite Grisham books of all time, two of my favorite books, frankly, two of my favorite thrillers of all time. The plot of the first book revolves around the theft of several of F. Scott Fitzgerald's original manuscripts, like handwritten mm-hmm. notes and things like that, including like The Great Gatsby, right? So these mm-hmm. are stolen from. I think, uh, I don't remember which university, but they're stolen. And the guys who steal them, you know, it's a very Ocean's Eleven kind of scenario. Like they found a crew, they've got their tech guy, they've got their muscle, they've got, you know, they've got this whole elaborate crew and things go wrong and the books end up at this, uh, there's a bookseller who the FBI or somebody thinks is in the trade of selling stolen manuscripts. And so th- that's what this kind of reminded me of was something along those lines. So I would want to tell a story like that, where maybe this guy is sort of known for these maps and kind of what you were indicating, like someone taps him to go bigger, to use his skill set for something else. And I would kind of make him the, I can't remember if Spanish Prisoner was like this with Steve Martin, if it was kind of like this, where the bad guy turned out to be the good guy or whatever. Okay. but. For some reason, that popped into my head, but I kind of thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if you know you've got this guy who's legitimately a, a thief and a pest, you know? But he's relatively small time compared to the rest of this market. But they employ him in some way to do what he does: steal maps from these libraries, but leverage him to gain access to like a vault of much more valuable and much more rare books that they can sell in the black market for millions. So that's the direction I think I'd go where it's kind of like they're almost using him as a fall guy, but then he turns it all around and manages to outsmart the guys who were using him. Like I would almost want to write that as a sort of, we think he's an idiot for getting involved in this. We think he's at risk, but he's actually the mastermind all along. You know what I'm saying? Sort of a, like oh, uh, yeah. it'd be like uh, the usual suspects in a way. 
Okay. The yeah. Okay. Source, I guess, uh, of this group, like he actually formulated this group. They don't know. They think he's just the patsy, but he's actually the mastermind. So they've been working against themselves the entire story. That's nice. the book I'd write. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's good stuff. I, I need to log off because I've got to go start working <laughs> on that book. Right now. Well, we can segue into something different. I've Let's got a favorite subject of mine that I, I honestly, I frankly can't believe I had sort of forgotten about this. Because this was the OG subject for me. And what I mean by that is my very first book was called originally The Golden Crystal. And it's since been relaunched as The Atlantis Stone because I needed something a little less kind of fantasy sounding. For It was a thriller. It is a thriller. Yeah. But this book, The Golden Crystal, it actually wasn't about being gold. I mean, it's a crystal. It's not gold. But it's about the golden ratio. And I was absolutely floored by this. I think it was in Da Vinci Code, actually. One of the – probably the book that I would say launched my career because – I read it in you know, high school and I was like, this is incredible. I love this book. This is really you know, well plotted. It's fun. I didn't know there was a genre like this is what it was. And so then when I started writing, that was my genre. That was the thing I wanted to do. And Dan yeah. Brown sort of, it almost felt off the cuff. It almost felt like kind of this, this side story that he didn't have time to get into. But he has Robert Langdon, his main character, of course, sort of mention the golden ratio and the number yeah. phi, the Greek, the Greek symbol that represents the number, which is phi. And he just sort of threw it out there and then talked about what it is. And I was like, that's insane if that's real. And I, I looked it up and it turns out it is real. And so I threw that into my book and that became sort of the basis, essentially the scientific basis of, or I should say the mathematical basis of what the golden crystal eventually was. Most of us listening, you know, you guys have probably heard of the Fibonacci series. And this is that mathematic sequence where you take the previous number and or the previous two numbers, add them together, and that gets you your next number. So zero, and then one, and then zero plus one is one. So it's zero, one, one, two, three, five, eight, 13, 21, 34, 55. And you can keep going forever. What happens is if you like divide them a certain way, I can't remember the exact details of the math. It's very simple math. It's algebra. You get the golden ratio. And that number is uh, 1.61803, whatever. It's, a, in, it's an irrational number, I think. Or what's the one where the number just keeps going forever, like pi? It's the same sort of thing. But that number, 1.618 to 1 as a ratio, so 1.618 colon 1, is the golden ratio. And that golden ratio is thought to be the number that God used to create the universe, the heavens and the earth and everything on it. You know, even if you don't want to go the God route, you know, if you're listening, you're looking at that, there's some unmistakable clarity about how living organisms, and even some natural geologic formations form. And they all are related to this golden ratio somehow. I don't mean like some mysteriously, you know, okay, well, if you do this and divide this and then take the, the root mean and, and just it, I'm talking like it's straight up visible. You can see this thing. So I linked to an article here, <laughs> a very reputable source. This is the Mathnasium of Pflugerville, of yeah. all things. But they did a great job because I just wanted some examples of you know, with pictures of what you could, you know, kind of see this working out. The first thing to point you guys at is the picture of the sunflower head, or in general, they say seed head. So a lot of flowers follow this, but the sunflower is a great example because it's big and you can see the individual seed pods. There is a very distinct geometric design here. Mm -hmm. And of course, not surprisingly, the math works out to the golden ratio, meaning the way the pods grow as they get bigger, as they go out in these concentric circle-ish things is 1.618 to one. So if one petal or pod is, you give it unit one, then the next one is larger by a factor of 1.618. That's yeah. how that works out. So, and that just keeps going and it's exact. This isn't like, you know, 
well, you know, we averaged every sunflower seed pod head on the planet because like, obviously we can't do that. So it's exact. Pine cones grow the same way. They spiral outward and they get larger. Lots of fruits and vegetables, they say, tree branches. You can see a picture of that. Shells is the popular one. They've got this really popular spiral, which <laughs> this image here is actually in the golden crystal. I copied it. I don't know where it came from. Um, it's a logarithmic spiral. So it, it gets bigger each time by a certain factor, and that factor is the golden ratio. But I use this spiral as the design of the spiral walkway found underneath the temple at the facade at Petra in Jordan. So you walk through the seek, you know, you go through those like super tall cliffs with a little walkway and you see this treasury or the, sorry, the treasury, not the temple. And of course, in real life, the, the treasury is just a facade. It's like, you know, you, you, it's like a, it's been carved out of the rock. It's not an actual room inside. Of course, in the golden crystal, there is a room inside and they find this room and they get in and there's a walkway that kind of descends down in a spiral that gets bigger as it goes. And it's this golden ratio spiral. So that's one, one aspect I use in the book, but going back to real things, this spiral shape is the exact shape of many shells. Any, any shell that gets you know, larger and concentric grows over you know, time with whatever thing is inside of it. It grows by a factor of the golden ratio. Or I don't know if I'm saying that mathematically incorrect, but the, the golden ratio shows up again there. As if that weren't enough, galaxies have the same yeah. spiral shape down to yeah. the mathematic. I mean, this is, it's, so it's throughout the universe. It's this number yeah. is found. And it can't be coincidental. Now, I'm not saying I believe that this is how God, I am saying I believe this is how God kind of designed the universe and everything we've got here. But even if you didn't want to put the God piece in there, you can't argue that there is some you know, mathematical governance of the heavens yeah. and earth that we live in, right? There is some sort of mathematical unity, whether it's completely random, who knows, who cares? It's pretty fascinating that this thing just keeps showing up. The next one down is a hurricane. This yeah. one looks like off the coast of Virginia. Same spiral shape. Human faces. This is where it gets into the design. You know, the golden ratio shows up in design a lot. This like, you know, thirds and all that. Because right. 1.618 is kind of divisible. It's almost divisible by three, right? 1.6666, I think it would be. So faces show up, a lot of golden ratio, distance from the edge of the eye to the nose to the edge of the eye to the side of the face, for example. Anyway, I can go on and on about this thing, man. But I just love this golden ratio, this number. This has all been... Hey, this, this is how this thing shows up. Yeah. <laughs> so it's used in a lot of ways as well, especially in like uh, programming and 3D animation and things like that. Like if you wanted to generate, you know, realistic seeming plant life or, or whatever uh, in a scene like that, this is part of that process, like creating fractals and creating the sort of randomized landscapes and things like that to make it feel natural. They, they use this to iterate. So it's, it's very intriguing to me, but this is part of the evidence that people use when they talk about things like, you know, the universe is actually a simulation. Yes. The fact that that is a, such an integral part. You brought up the whole like macro versus micro mm -hmm. idea, which is literally, I was literally today going through and thinking about a lot of certain aspects of that. And to me, that's what's really intriguing and fascinating is that you've got this pattern that is on display, no matter how closely you look at something, no matter how wide your view is. It shows up in the micro level. It shows up in the macro level. There's a relationship there. And that's what's fascinating to me. People always think about, you know, when you're talking about the vastness of the universe, they think about, you know, they look up, right? Mm -hmm. And they forget to look like down or in. Yeah, uh, We're always thinking about the outside. If you started going down 
closer and closer to like the quantum realm, the universe is even more vast than you ever realized because there's stuff down there. (laughs) You know, there's like patterns down there that we are now starting, you know, there's a point at which light is actually too large to be able to illuminate the stuff that we see at that level. Individual Uh, photon is is too big. Yeah, right, right. right. So, you know, we actually have to sort of create 3D models of what is there in order for us to be able to visualize it in any way. And this is part of how we do that because we know that those patterns continue. We can assume that they continue on even into the dark, as it were, where there is no possibility of light. Like we can actually take what we know of of these things. And when we apply things like the Fibonacci sequence, we get some insight into what could be going on in sort of the quantum realm beyond our ability to see. So that's where it becomes kind of important for us from a scientific perspective, from a mathematical perspective. So yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, that's great. This is a great one. It's fascinating, man. I can't get over the, I mean, <laughs> yes, everything you said is accurate. I just am still floored by these examples. I can't even... Like I had yeah. heard, oh, honeybees follow it too. Well, apparently they follow it in numerous ways. Like for one, I knew that the number of females in a colony outnumber males. Yeah. I, I think that's a trivial fact that I'd learned. The answer to by how much do females outnumber males always, every single time in every colony, no matter what, is usually something very close to 1.618. And when I say very close, I mean like 1.6190 or 1.6179. Like it's very close. You know, and so when you take all the colonies yeah. in existence and, you know, average them together, you get 1.618. You get the golden ratio without fail. In addition, because I guess I didn't realize this, but I guess males have one parent. They have a female. Honeybee males have one parent, while females have two parents. It's part of the reason they outnumber the males. So when it comes to the family tree, males have two, three, five, and eight grandparents, great grandparents, on and on and on. But the following the same pattern, females have two, three, five, eight, thirteen. Fibonacci sequence, the number of yeah. grandparents they have. It's insane, man. Oh, here's another one. Animal flight patterns. When a hawk approaches its prey, its sharpest view is at an angle to their direction of flight. Guess what angle that is? The same as the spiral's pitch, which means the golden ratio, right? So it's just incredible to me how it's not that, oh, well, he, we have these 14 examples of how the Fibonacci sequence, wow, that's the same number. That's coincidental. No, we just haven't studied everything enough to find the golden ratio in it. Like yeah. it's in everything. It's just there. All the, I bet electricity spirals through a tube at, you know, the Fibonacci. Scene. I don't know. I'm just, I bet if we studied something long enough, we would find, we just deconstruct it down to its core cellular makeup, even, even, yeah. you know, corkle makeup. I don't even know. We would find this Fibonacci, uh, the golden ratio in it. It's just absolutely mind blowing to me, man. I just think it's super cool that there's this unified number across civilizations that we've discovered. The pyramids were thought to have been built based on, you know, this geometric understanding, yeah. you know, that, oh, well, the strongest angle for the four sides is going to be the Fibonacci sequence, you know, yeah. ratio of that to parallel with earth, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a geometrist. Crazy stuff, man. Crazy stuff. It is crazy. That's the stuff that's mind boggling to me. And uh, as a believer in a creator, I see it, frankly, as pure evidence of a mind at work in the creation of the universe. But, you know, to each their own, I guess. You can, well, I think the, uh, we can just call it coincidence, I guess. You know, if God can just snap his finger and life comes into existence, like, okay, that's fine. That's great. The scientist in me, right? The guy who likes to learn wants yeah. to say, what if God just used it? He created us in his image. 
So that means if I like to make systems out of things, to make things easier on myself, why wouldn't God do the same thing? Why wouldn't he say, here's this number and I'm going to just, I'm just going to spark something. And then based on that ratio, this sunflower is going to come into existence, you know, and this honeybee colony is going to come into existence. It seems to me like a mechanism for creation. Yeah. You know, it seems to me that that's the answer here is, is this was something that was used by God to create everything. I just find in much the same way that I always use sort of video game argument It's sort of those open world games like MMOs and things like that. You know, if you wanted to create a game like that, you didn't want to have to mess with. I forget the game. Ernie Dempsey is obsessed with this game where is that it where you're exploring the universe? It's procedurally created as you go out. Yes, yes. Yeah, I forget. the name. So it's not a world that was designed by designers. It's procedurally generated as you go. Oh, there's a mountain here. Well, that was random or arbitrary, I should say. And it's an infinite landscape that Mm -hmm. you're flying through and you might discover a planet with alien life on it completely randomly generated but they've basically established rules and they've established a process that you know the system can use well you know looking at them like well how is that any different than what we're experiencing in the universe now so i think stuff like that gives a lot of credence to the idea of you know we're living in a simulation I think so. Too, I think man. no matter what, it is a simulation of some kind. But that's that's very that's, that's very true. That's yeah, where we put it. Yeah, physics. <laughs> I mean, it's a simulation. That those are the rules, the parameters, if yeah. you will, the boundaries, the walls of our simulation. Whether it's real or not, that's a whole different existential question, right? But it's a simulation. However, you crack it. If in no other way, then yeah. when you're transitioning from the macro to the micro level, when you're seeing this repeating pattern, the further out you go, the more that pattern is a simulation of the pattern that came before that is logistically an argument yeah. that, that we can validate you know yeah. so because we're made up of atoms atoms are very similar to think you know celestial bodies for example mm-hmm. so you know you start going out 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 what's out beyond we know that the galaxy that we inhabit is not the only galaxy there's a cluster of galaxies that make up the universe maybe you know we apparently have calculated the edge of the known universe at 14 million light years out so what's outside that right <laughs> so yeah this that's where these questions start to kind of get into late night special brownie blow your mind territory <laughs> you know this is where a glass of scotch and a good friend uh, and a nice yeah. comfy armchair would be that's what i'm missing about this full circle coming all the way back to not all seeing each other in real life for too long we need to get together in real <laughs> life again We'll do this. I'll have a we'll house soon. And when I have a house. <laughs> I have a house. You come up to my house anytime you want. I, I, got co- I can come to your house. house. But, you know, you have family that live very close to me, to where I'm building. So That's true. Uh, very true. I think the odds are I'll see you in Texas before you'll see me in Colorado. Well, it's not the family I'm probably going to be visiting. But, yeah, I'll come visit you instead. <laughs> I'll send my wife and kids over there and then we'll do it. see you. We'll do it. All right. right, Well, it's been fun as always. I hope you've enjoyed. Listen, I'm talking to you now, listener. So just pay attention because now I'm bringing you into this thing. There's something for you to do here, listener. There's a call to action because, you know, we're not good writers if we're not good marketers. So go do something for me. Go give this a review. Give it a rating. Wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, iTunes. Is that still a thing? I don't know. Whatever Apple's thingy is, Apple Podcasts, go find that. Go give us a five-star rating. You know, and then I'd love for you to reach out to us if you got something you think we should cover. And that's easy to do. It's an email address. You should know how to use email. Maybe we'll talk about it on the show sometime because it's cool. It's real. 
But that email address is hello at stuffthatsreal.com. And we want to hear from you. We want you to listen. We want you to, to tell us what you think. Well, that's about all I have, man. So I guess we wrap up today and we will see you next time, next week, something like that. See you all next time. Yeah. All right. Take care. Take oh, care. Bye. Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str.